So week nine, here we are. Last week we looked at a marker of genuine faith and that marker was that genuine faith hates the wisdom and the ways of the world. And we talked about the difference between earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. And we talked about the difference between being a friend of the world and being a friend of God. And we saw that it was impossible to be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. That to be a friend of the world was to be an enemy of God, which means that we are going to end up living our lives here as aliens and strangers. So if you think back to middle school and what you felt like in middle school when you walked into the cafeteria, you may remember that feeling of, oh my gosh, just I don't want anyone's attention on me. I just want to blend in, right? I'm the only one. And so when I was in middle school back in the day, when would that have been? 1981 to 83 about, um, Getting to blend in in the cafeteria meant that I got a page boy haircut and I had Atta beads necklaces and I had um, a little polo shirt. Well, for me, I couldn't get the polo shirt, so I had the fake JCPenney one that just had a horse, but if you look closely, there was no rider on it. Um, and, you know, the certain jeans that you had to wear, I believe it was Gloria Vanderbilt at the time. Um, and actually, those Sperry topsiders that are back in, yeah, you owe that to us back in 1981. So... You wanted to look just like that so that when you walked into the cafeteria, no one would know. It wasn't about looking awesome. It was about not being singled out for ridicule was really what it was about. And I think that sometimes we take on this mentality as citizens of this earth. That is how we display friendship with the world as we think, I just want to blend in. I just don't want to draw scrutiny. But the reality is this, that if we are friends of God, we are not going to be able to blend in. We are going to look radically different. We don't get to wear the Atabead necklace. We don't get to wear the Sperry topsiders. We're going to look different. We're going to act differently. And so when my kids have come home from school and reflected on what other children have that everybody's wearing or everybody owns, fill in the blank, um, the thing that we always have to say to them again and again is, how does it make you feel when you don't have those things? And they say, it makes me feel different. It makes me feel just odd and awkward. It makes me feel uncomfortable. And then we have to say to them, that's actually a feeling we're looking to cultivate. Do you realize that? Like that's a feeling you need to get used to because that's what it feels like to live as an alien and a stranger. And if you ever stop feeling that way, if you ever start feeling too much like you do belong, then that should be a red flag to you. That's a hard message when you're in the seventh grade, but none of you are in the seventh grade anymore. And as we grow in the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, we begin to understand what this not fitting means. It means that we are developing a friendship with the Lord that makes us turn our backs on friendship with the world. So we saw last week that godly, um, that genuine faith hates the wisdom and ways of the world, that it turns to the wisdom and ways of the Lord instead. And this week, we're going to look at three worldly ways that are born out of what we looked at last week. Those two things that we looked at last week that were causing trouble and they were selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Do you remember those? And so we're going to see three other ways that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition manifest themselves this week. And we're going to see that they manifest themselves in the form of slander, in the form of boasting, and in the form of hoarding. So we get to look at all three of these tonight. And I would imagine if you're like me, that oh, and FYI, sorry, the homework seemed a little long to me this week. Is it just because it was week nine? But I thought, why am I not getting hate mail? They're all being so nice to me. So sorry about that. (laughs) Not really. So... um, 
here we are, yeah, I'm week nine and I'm beating you down with extra homework. So we had to look at these three things, slander and boasting and hoarding. And I don't know about you, but I saw myself in all three of these. And with slander, I've been on both sides of it. I've been the one who was slandered and I've been the one who has slandered. And so that's always just a very sensitive thing for me. It just, it's because the times that I've been slandered, you just, you want to defend yourself, right? So we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. And then with the boasting about, you know, what I'm going to do today or tomorrow. Yeah, that one hit me pretty hard. And then the hoarding thing, man, can we stop talking about that? Because I started thinking about the stupid things that I hoard, like hairspray. And tinfoil, like things where I'm at the grocery store and I think, oh, I don't know, I might be running out of that. And so you grab another one and then you get home and there's five of them in your cabinet. This sense of, oh my gosh, what if I don't have what I need? And just how pervasive that is in our culture where none of us doesn't have what we need. So it was a tough week, but let's dig in and see what we can find out, what genuine marker of faith we get to look at tonight. So we are in James chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 11. James has this to say to us. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James opens up with this idea, continuing from last week, right? Because what causes us to slander someone? Is it not bitter envy and selfish ambition? And so he's pointing out here, do not speak evil against one another. Do not slander one another. Who? brothers, or if you looked at your footnote, brothers and sisters. So is he speaking about slandering people in general? No, he's actually addressing his actual set of people who are within the community of believers. And he's saying, listen, don't be slandering your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you looked up, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't slander people who are outside of the church, but he's saying, of all people who you must not slander, don't slander your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I look at this as, um, I mean, another parenting example within my home. If my kids are at each other, right, if you cannot speak truly and well of the person you share a room with, then you will not be spending time with the friends who live outside of our home, right? If you cannot be kind to the best friend that sleeps in the bed that's 10 feet away from you, then you don't get to go have fun with the friends who live outside of our home. Because listen, brothers and sisters, if we can't be kind to one another, how can we have any kind of credibility in our kindness to those who are outside of our home? And that's exactly what James is saying to this early church. And you remember, they're under difficult circumstances. We've talked about this at great length, that they are dealing with financial difficulties. They're dealing with political difficulties. They have been cast out of their circles that they used to be in because they're no longer Jewish or because they have adopted this new system of belief. And so they are feeling the pressure. And what do we do when we feel pressure? We lash out at the people who are closest to us. And so when James addresses slander, he addresses it within the body of believers. And what was the difference in your homework between slandering someone and bringing an accusation against someone? What was the difference? With slander, what are you doing? You're creating a falsehood, right? So it's one thing to say so-and-so did something to me and be speaking the truth. It is another thing to say you won't believe what so-and-so did and then to tell a falsehood. 
And the interesting thing about slander is if you've ever been the victim of slander, someone has said something that is untrue about you. When that person said that thing that was untrue, did they believe that it was untrue when they said it? Usually not, right? They actually think that what they're saying about you is true. Or maybe it's more precise to say that when someone slanders us, they, they believe that most of what they're saying is true. But then to make their argument more convincing, they go into falsehood to emphasize what they're doing. And so here's what the slanderer relies on. The slanderer relies on a couple of things. They rely, first of all, on a willing listener. So if we want to eliminate slander within the body of believers, one of the best things that we can do is not give a willing audience to someone who wants to talk ill about someone else. That is the very first thing that we can do because a slanderer needs someone who is willing to listen. And why do we slander someone? It's usually because we believe that they have offended us or harmed us in some way. So think about the times that you have been the slanderer. Okay, so someone hurts your feelings or wounds you in some way, and how do you want to make yourself feel better? You want to go find other people who you can surround yourself with who will see your point of view and will what? Take your side because that makes us feel much better, at least in the short term. And so we begin to rally the troops. We begin to go out and find people to whom we can tell our story. And what the slanderer relies on is that they can find people who will only hear their side of the story. Have you ever had someone come to you and start talking to you about a marriage problem that they were having? And you're listening and she's talking about her husband and all the terrible things that that dirty dog does. And you get to the end of your coffee date with her and you're like, you go home and you tell your husband, I do not know how she is married to that man. I mean, you would not believe some of the stunts that guy's pulling. And then what happens? Her husband calls your husband and says, hey, can we go get coffee? And they go out, and your husband comes home, and he's like, hey, turns out there's maybe more to this than your friend let on. Have you ever had this happen? Because what do we know is true? There are always, always, always two sides to a story. Always. And the slanderer relies on you only being able to hear one side of the story. So they will try to keep you aside and keep you away from anyone who can give you more information on what actually happened. Because they want to self-elevate by pushing someone else down. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, acting out again. So we use this as a way to self-elevate, to push ourselves higher than someone else and to push someone else down. And the um, slanderer relies on a willing listener and on the relative certainty that only one side of the story will be heard. So if someone comes to you and tells you something terrible about someone else, before you jump on their side, remind yourself there is probably more to this story. And you know what? I think it's pretty easy for us to get to that place, or it can be easy for us to get to that place within our immediate circle of friends and believers, our immediate circle of brothers and sisters. But we live in a digital age where our brothers and sisters are daily slandered through social media. And please, please, please do not join in the fray. When you hear a pastor or a religious leader who is being torn apart on the internet and you don't know that person and you don't know any of the people involved, be very careful not to weigh in because we can very quickly move to slander. Why? Because we only know part of the story. 
And that's what, Jesus, what James is going to go on to talk about here. He moves from this idea of slander to the idea of judging. He says, anyone who speaks evil against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. And which law is this? He's talked about the law before. It is the royal law. It is the law of love. It is the law that gives liberty. And he says, you're speaking against that law. Why is that? Because under the law which Christ fulfilled... Our brothers and sisters have been declared guilt-free because of the finished work of Christ. So when we sit in judgment on them and we call for judgment to fall on them, we are denying the efficacy of the crucifixion. So, now what's the difference though? What's the difference between judging rightly and judging wrongly? Because we talked earlier, what's the difference between bringing an accusation against someone that is true and this thing that we're talking about, this thing that is a false accusation? So there's the issue of truth in there, but there's also this issue of motive, right? Because when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount in a very similar passage about someone who has a log in their eye and is pointing out a speck in Am I back? has a log in his eye and is talking about someone else who has a speck in their eye, what we have to understand is that he's not saying we never discern who is in sin and who is not in sin. He's saying examine your motives because you hear people say all the time, judge not lest you be judged. Don't you look at me. Don't you tell me what I'm doing wrong. You don't know. Well, the truth is we do sometimes know when someone's doing something wrong. And as a fellow believer, we are even called to go and approach someone about that in love. But what's the difference? The kind of judging that is wrong for us is the kind that seeks to reject, wound, and condemn. The kind of judging that is right for us is the kind that seeks to heal and restore. They are completely different. And what James is singling out here is this one that wants to condemn and reject. And he's saying, don't you sit in judgment on the law. There is no condemnation for those who are under Christ. So he says, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And what has he been saying all along? Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. And so he's saying, look, when you start doing this, you have stopped doing the will of God and you have made yourself a judge. And what kind of judge are you? Verse 12, he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. It's interesting that he adds that phrase on there. Who is the one lawgiver and judge? It's the Lord, right? And you notice what he says. He says, the Lord is, e- is able to save and destroy. But a human judge, in contrast, what is a human judge able to do? Are we able to save anyone? No, we are only able to tear someone down. When we pass unfair judgment on someone, all we do is destroy. But the Lord is able to save and destroy. He says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And this is a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who are we to judge our neighbor in that wrong way, in that way that wants to condemn, in that way that wants to reject? Let's contrast ourselves to God, the just judge. In contrast to God, we are lawbreakers ourselves. So anyone who we pass judgment on, we can know that we too are condemned by the law if we condemn others by the law. We are lawbreakers, and the Lord obviously obeys the law all the time. It is his law. How much knowledge do we have as a judge? Partial knowledge, right? Let me ask you something. If you have ever gone before a judge in a court of law, and we don't want to take a show of hands here. I don't want to know who's got a record. If you have ever gone before a judge, which judge do you want? The one who has part of the information or the one who has all of the information? Assuming that you're innocent, you want the one who has 
all of the information, right? And this is the just judge. That is who God is. He holds all information. So we judge based on partial knowledge. We only have half the story or maybe a little more than half, but we can't ever see the whole picture, but the Lord sees it all. What about our motives? We judge with impure motives to self-elevate. What about the Lord when he judges? His motive is always pure. It is to protect his holy name. And when we judge, we human judges, when we judge, our tendency is to cry for justice and not mercy. And this is not what our Heavenly Father has demonstrated among our brothers and sisters. He does not cry for justice. Instead, he cries for mercy and grace on behalf of his son Christ, who has met justice on our behalf. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You are completely unqualified, completely unqualified unqualified to judge, to reject and condemn your neighbor. And the punchline here to what James is saying is, if we are unmerciful to our brothers, how will we treat the lost? If we are unmerciful to those within the community of faith, what chance do we stand of demonstrating mercy in any convincing way to an unbelieving world? So we remember that those who are against slander, those who engage in a right form of judging, are those who are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, right? And that those who judge wrongly are those who are quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry. If we are unmerciful to our brothers, how will we treat the lost? And then James moves on to another manifestation of bitter envy and selfish ambition. And it is boasting. It is a specific kind of boasting. And his tone shifts when he gets to verse 13. You noted this in your homework. Instead of saying, my dear brothers or my brothers or anything like that, what does he say? He says, come now you who say. And we're going to see this in the next section as well on hoarding. Come now you who say. So his his tone becomes less familial. It becomes less familiar. And we begin to see him addressing behaviors that are particularly unbecoming to those in the body of Christ. And I think what we see here and what commentators would say that we see here is that he is now making allowance for the truth that within the body of believers there will be those who look like they have genuine faith but in fact do not. And then there will be those who do have genuine faith but still struggle with these kinds of things. And so when he gets to talking about the rich, he's going to get really tough in his speech, isn't he? So he's building toward that. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're going to talk about next year. You don't even know what's coming for you tomorrow. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now this is familiar language. This is what he said to us earlier. He said that man was like the grass back in chapter 1, right? And this mist and vapor language. All of this is language that is from the Old Testament. It appears in the Psalms. Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's echoing that idea here. You are fleeting. You are so quickly here and gone. And so you're going you're gonna to plan what you're going to do a couple years from now? Now, does this mean that we don't plan for the future? No. I mean, we're called to have wisdom. We're supposed to be those people who think wisely about how we steward resources, about how we steward our time. So what attitude is it that he is speaking against here? He's speaking against an attitude of self-determination and self-sufficiency that says, you know what, I'm going to plan all this out. I'm going to get all my ducks in a row, and then everything will go well for me. 
And think about how silly this is. I remember going to a job interview, um, and they ask this in every job interview, don't they? They say, let's talk about, you know, where do you see yourself six months from now? And where do you see yourself five years from now or ten years from now? And what do they want you to say? They want to hear you like rattle off some goals that show that you have some direction and you know where you're headed. And I remember so distinctly sitting in a job interview and saying, you know, if you had asked me five years ago where I would be now, I couldn't answer that question. So how on earth am I supposed to tell you where I'm going to be five years from now? It was an honest answer. It was an accurate answer. I did not get the job. We don't know what even tomorrow will bring, which means that though we lay plans with the best wisdom that we can appropriate them with, we hold them with an open hand. Because again, when you compare us to God, how do we stack up? We are fleeting, he has just told us. James has just told us, you are here today and gone tomorrow. And in contrast, how is God? He is eternal. He exists outside of time. He ordains all things. How much knowledge do we have? We have partial knowledge. How much knowledge do we have of the future? Virtually none. I mean, we can make some predictions based on patterns we've seen before, but in all practical sense, virtually none. And how much knowledge of the future does God have? He has perfect knowledge of not just the future, but of the present and of the past. He holds it all in his knowledge. How much power do we have to affect the world around us? Very little. We are limited in power. How much power does our Heavenly Father have? The one who clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the sparrows. He holds all power. How much authority and control do we have? We have very little, which is why we are such jerks about the authority and control that we do have. But how much authority and control does God hold? He holds all authority. He is the sovereign Lord. So James is going to present us with a different way that we should look at the future. And he sums it up this way. He says, instead of saying, let's do all of these things and these things will just happen because I have said so and I have put the wheels into motion. And not only that, but in some of our thinking, we think I've done all the right things. And so the Lord will reward me for being so good at this and things will pay off in the future. He says, no, instead of talking in those terms, you ought to say in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that as it is. You boast in your arrogance. You act like you're in control of everything. All such boasting is evil. So in other words, what I'm supposed to do is just say, well, Lord willing, this will happen or this will happen and just keep all the same attitudes. No, you see, it's not about baptizing your stupid plans with a phrase that makes them sound holy. Oh my gosh, though, we do this, don't we? Or we use this as sort of a way to stall on people. So like someone comes up to you and says, hey, I really need some help planning the PTA program at the school. Um, Do you have any time for that? And what do we say? Oh, listen, I'm just going to seek the Lord on that. I don't know if that's his. Let me, let me see if that's the direction the Lord would have me go. I'm just going to seek his will. Or, you know, or maybe it's um, uh, someone says, uh, and I'm like, just tell me, just tell me you don't want to do it, right? Hey, let's go have lunch next week. Oh, I'm going to have to pray about that. Get your calendar out. Let's go. Godly wisdom means you don't have to ask the Lord for knowledge. You remember this whole discussion from week one? It means you don't have to say, who does the baby belong to? You use the wisdom applied that you already have. You apply that wisdom. So you look at your calendar and you go, I have time. And then you're honest with me. And you either look me in the face and say, I don't really like you. And I don't want to go to lunch with you. Or you say, let's do it. 
We don't have to seek the Lord's will on something like that. The Lord has given you all that is needful for you to make that decision. But we love the language of it because it makes us sound holy and it allows us to buy some time, right? So that when I come back to you two weeks later and go, hey, can you help with that PTA program? And you're like, I just don't sense the Lord moving me that direction. And I want to sock you in the face because you knew that two weeks ago. So we got to be really careful the way we talk about this, if the Lord wills. Because what, what he means for us to acknowledge is that anything can happen tomorrow. The phone can ring. Anything could happen. You could get the test results back. Anything could happen. But as far as I am able, I am going to do the good and the right thing. But we're consumed with this idea of what is the Lord's will. And am I in it or am I out of it? And we think that it is like this secret code we have to crack. And it's going to tell us which job we should take or which car we should buy or which spouse we should marry. And I have to tell you that the scripture is not silent on what the will of God is for your life. Do you realize that? So let's take a look. It's going to be up on the screens here and then I will also post a link to all these scriptures so don't feel like you have to write everything down and for you podcasters out there in podcast land I will um, link to this and have it out on Podbean for you to find. What is God's will for your life? The first thing I want you to see God's will for your life is that you be saved. God's will for your life is that you be saved. First Timothy 2 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Listen, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- that all should reach repentance. The Lord wills that you be saved. Now we could get into a big discussion here about why is everybody not saved if the Lord wills it? And there is a great answer for that, but trust me, I don't have time to cover it tonight. So I'll look for an article I can send out for you to read on that. But you can know that if you have saving faith today, it is because the Lord has willed that it be so. So the first thing that the Lord wills for your life is that you be saved. And the second is this, the Lord's will for your life is that you be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So perk up your ears. Don't we all want to know what the will of the Lord is? And do not get drunk with wine. Oh, darn. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you grew up Baptist, I apologize. No, I did too. It's going to be fine. You heard this verse as it's terrible to drink alcohol. Now, Okay, there's a part of that in here, but really the bigger issue is he's making a contrast between what it's like to be drunk on wine and what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. So someone who, I mean, I hear, I don't know firsthand, but let's say you've been drunk on wine before, what happens? Your inhibitions are down, right? You're ready to go fight when, and you take risks, and you become bold, right? And he's saying, hey, don't, don't look at that kind of boldness. You be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit empower you to dare great things and to do great things. And so there's a really important contrast there. And what he's saying is this is the will of God for your life, that you have that kind of boldness, that you be filled with the Spirit following your salvation. 
But here's a third thing that the Lord wills for your life. God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. Now, we talk about the three P's of salvation all the time, right? We talk about that the first P is you're saved from the penalty of sin when you are justified. And then the second P is that you're saved from the power of sin when you are sanctified. And that's what we're talking about now. The third P, which I always forget to mention, is that you're saved from the presence of sin when you are glorified, when you go to be in heaven with the Lord. But this, the Lord's will is that you be sanctified, that you be progressively set free from the power of sin, that you begin to choose rightly instead of choosing wrongly. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I, just, I don't think we can make it any more clear. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust. He goes on and on through this list of things, and he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you who it is his will you be filled with, as we've already said. So the Lord wills that you be saved. He wills that you be filled with the Spirit. He wills that you be sanctified. And fourth, he wills that you be submissive, that you be submissive. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The Lord wills that you submit to the authorities that he has placed over you. Not because you trust the authorities. We've talked about this some. But because you trust the Lord who has placed them over you. This is why when we have a presidential election and your guy or girl doesn't get elected, you don't freak out and light your hair on fire. Because the Lord ordains these things. You're okay. Take a deep breath. But it is the Lord's will that you be submissive. It is also the Lord's will, number five, that you suffer. 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you. It has been given to you. It has been gifted to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Brother James has made this very clear to us already, hasn't he? When he says, trials are coming and consider them joy, count them as joy because they're moving you toward maturity. But do you realize that it is the Lord's will that you suffer? This flies in the face of much of the teaching that you can hear on the TV and the radio today. That in some sense, suffering becomes in the hands of God who works all things together a good and perfect gift. Ultimately, not in the moment, but ultimately. It is also the Lord's will that you obey. That you obey. Not just that you obey, that you obey as an act of worship. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We should obey, we should obey as an act of worship, and we should obey from the heart. Ephesians 6, 5, and 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
God wills that we obey as an act of worship from the heart and as a way of life. Colossians 1, 9, and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then lastly, that you obey by the Spirit's enabling. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So what I have to ask is, why are we all still wandering around trying to find the will of God in our lives? Why are we still looking for something that the Lord has faithfully proclaimed to us in his word? And I think it's because we think that the will of God is something that we should do instead of someone who we should be. Because what does scripture say? You are to be saved, to be filled with the spirit, to be sanctified, to be submissive, to be a sufferer, to be obedient. Do you understand that if we were to be the person that the Lord has willed that we would be, then our doing would fall in line because of our being. So we can stop looking for the secret decoder ring that will tell us what is the right thing to choose. Because the Lord has already clearly told us this is the will of God for your life. There's a book that came out several years ago that I just love. It's called Just Do Something. I feel like I was waiting for about a decade for this book to be written. And I don't know if you've read it or not, but I love it. It's by Kevin DeYoung. And listen, because it has a really long subtitle that's really, really good. It's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Or, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. So listen to what he has to say about the will of God. He says, simply put, God's will is your growth in Christ-likeness. God promises to work all things together for our good that we might be conformed to the image of his son. So go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you're actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. How freeing is that? How freeing is that to trust that if I am being who the Lord would have me to be, he is changing my desire so that I will choose the things that the Lord would have me choose. So when we speak of the things that we will do in the future, we need not look for a magic decoder ring to know what the right things are to do. We do need to submit ourselves to the will of God. And the will of God is that we hold the future loosely in our hands and we worry more about being conformed to his image than about making the best choices and laying the best plans because he is a sovereign God. 
We cannot use the phrase, if the Lord wills, in a legalistic way. We must see it for what it is. It is an admission that God is sovereign and I am not. And I will do the best of my ability to exercise godly wisdom and I will trust the outcome to him. But James is not finished. He says in verse 5. I'm sorry. Yeah. 5 verse 1. Sorry, I printed that wrong on my paper. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Man, we get to end on a high note tonight, people. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is one of the liabilities of teaching a line-by-line Bible study, just by the way, is you can't always break it up to where you get to end with a, and peace be with you and also with you. So tonight we end with, um, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Okay, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So now James is opening up both barrels on rich people because we hate rich people, right? No. He is calling out people who are using their possessions in a certain way. And what is that way? They are storing up things in this life. They are padding this life. What are they doing? They are having their best life now. They are having heaven on earth. Why wait when we can have all of things these things now. And so he says, come now you rich. And he adopts that same tone. There is no, my brothers, my dear brothers, although he will return to that in his next section. Come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are potentially going to happen to you. Is that what he says? No, look at the certainty there. He says, these miseries are coming upon you. They are coming upon you. The certainty that judgment falls on those who turn away from the ways of the Lord. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So has anybody ever had something go bad in their pantry? Please don't let me be the only one. Like particularly flour. I look in there and the flour has things living in it. Has anybody had that happen? And how does that happen? Well, I know that at my house, I have three different kinds of flour that I keep in the pantry. I have, because I like to bake, right? So I have whole wheat flour, and then I have regular flour, and then I have self-rising flour, which I actually found out is kind of a gimmick, because all you have to do is add a couple other ingredients, and you can make self-rising flour. But that's what I have. Oh, and then there's Bisquick. So, like, I've got all these different varieties of, of things in the pantry, right? And the issue is that I have so many of these things that they stay in there long enough that they start to rot, Right? Or maybe it's that fruit in your fruit bowl. We overpurchase, right? And so we end up, you know, we throw away tons of food in our society. And so we can identify with what's being said here. Because the only way that you can understand what rotting food means is to have more food than you can possibly consume. And then the only way that you can have moths eat your clothes is to have more clothes than you can possibly wear. My stepmother's a knitter, and she made me this really great wool hat, which I loved because apparently my head is a little bit oversized. And I'm not being metaphorical right now, although that may be an application as well. And so I loved this hat because it was big enough, and it would go down over my ears, and it kept me warm, and I didn't have to, like, yank it down over the top of my head. And it was wool, and it was beautiful, and it sat in my closet over the winter, or over the summer, sorry, and the summer's long here, right? And do you know what happened when I pulled it out this year? It had holes in it. Something got in there and ate my hat. 
But if I had worn my hat all year long, would something have had a chance to eat it? No. And so we know that the people that, I also would have been, looked weird wearing a hat in the middle of summer, but you know, every metaphor has its limitations. Okay, so imagine the people that James is talking to. Are they wealthy people? No. For the most part, we've already identified that these people are the poor. These are the people who are the downtrodden. And so there may be a few rich people among their number, but we already saw that he said don't show favoritism when a rich person comes in. So that tells us that probably not many of them are rich, right? So the people that he is dealing with, the people to whom he is giving this illustration, he wants them to understand, hey, how many, how many clothes does the poor man have? He has the clothes on his back. I mean, that's why you had those Deuteronomy, those laws in Deuteronomy that said, hey, if, if you have someone's coat as collateral, you have to give it back at the end of the day to the poor man because that's all he has. That's what he keeps warm with at night. So the poor man has his daily bread and he has the clothes on his back. So what we're seeing here is a condemnation of those who have so many things that things are rotting around them and being consumed by moths because they have hoarded and heaped up treasures. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, your gold and silver have corroded. Gold and silver don't actually corrode. Do you realize that? So what James is doing here is he's saying, even the things that you think will outlast any of these effects are going to corrode. And how is that true? Because we all have heard the saying, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you because guess what? You're a mist and a vapor. Hey, mist and vapor, go store up some shiny things. They're not going with you. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So the more that we build heaven here on earth instead of longing for a heaven that is yet to come, the more we are storing up wrath against the day to come. He says, you have laid up, in other words, you have hoarded or heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, in what sense are we living in the last days? Well, in one sense, we are living in the last days ever since the coming of Christ, right? Because he inaugurated the last days. And we don't know how long it will be until the Lord returns. Some of us think it will be very, very soon. Some of us don't know. Um, But I've noticed a little trend. Maybe you've seen this too. That the older we get, the more we're pretty sure that the Lord is about to come back. So like when you're 15, you're like, oh, I don't want him to come back yet because I want to go to prom. And then, you know, you're like, oh, not yet because I want to get married. Oh, now I want to have babies. And so we go through this whole thing of like, oh, not yet, Lord, not yet. But then, you know, you get to be about my age and you're like, hmm, moth, rust, corrosion. It's all kind of coming more clear to me. Everything's moving south. You know, you start to see your own body begin to give way on you. And all of a sudden you're like, even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, you're like, let's get him back in here. And it's this whole escapist mentality of get me out of here because this is not looking good for me. Do you know what we have to understand is that whether the Lord returns in your lifetime or not, your lifetime is a mist and a vapor. Moses says in Psalm 90, man has 70 or 80 years. That's it. So here's what you can know with certainty. We are all living in the last days. No one in this room 70 or 80 years from now will still be alive. We will all have come face to face with our Lord. So how ought we then to live with the knowledge that his return is imminent for us, whether he comes in the clouds or whether we go to be with him in glory because we have passed on? 
So he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which, were, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He describes here someone who is so selfish and so callous about his possessions that he believes that the Lord of hosts does not see and does not hear. That he can defraud those who already have nothing and the Lord will not see. And James says, this is not so. The Lord of hosts, which is that name, Lord Sabaoth, which means the leader of the angel armies, knows what you have done. He knows. And he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence in verse 5. You have had heaven now instead of heaven later. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is a chilling, chilling verse. Fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So we said the heart is the seat of the will, right? We've talked about this before, which means it's where your desires live. And you remember how James talked about what it was that dragged us away into sin? What was it? It was our desires, right? So he's saying, you have fattened your hearts. You have fed your desires in the very day of slaughter. In the day of slaughter. Have you ever seen a feedlot? You remember my recent sunny excursion to Amarillo? There is a large feedlot right near the freeway. You can smell it before you can see it. And, uh, you know, there's all these cattle, and they're all standing around looking fat and happy. And their full entire job while they're at the feedlot is to do what? is to eat. They're supposed to be fattened up. And I don't know what those cows think is coming next. Like, do they think that they're training for a marathon? Uh, You know, do they think that it's just like the all-you-can-eat buffet and they're in cow heaven? I'm not sure what they're thinking, but you and I know with certainty what their next stop is. It's not the Rodeo Houston, unless they're going to go there on a bun, right? So here they are standing on a feedlot. Their whole job is to fatten their hearts in the day of slaughter. And this is the picture that we are given in Scripture of what we are like when we cling to the comforts and the, the consuming patterns of this world. Do you not realize that you are a mist and a vapor? Do you really think that you can pull this off? Do you not think that the Lord sees what you are doing? That all of your happiness terminates on yourself. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist. There is a far better meal for us to dine on than that which is offered to us by a wicked world. And it is given to us in John chapter 6, if you will turn there with me. John chapter 6. We're out of time, so I'm just going to read a little piece of this. John chapter 6, starting in verse 51. These are the words of Jesus. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. He has a fatness of heart that outlives time. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
What are we talking about here? What does it mean to feed on the flesh and blood of Christ? That's kind of a creepy image if we don't take a minute to look at it longer. But he's saying something figurative, isn't he? He's saying, he who takes on my character. He who internalizes and identifies with me in my suffering. He is the one who will grow fat on the pleasures of a world yet to come. Who will store up treasures in heaven, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He is the one. And we must be reminded of this. We must remember that we are to identify with him in his suffering. That we are to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that he demonstrated for us. And I don't know, I know that we had 54 churches represented in our, re- in our registration this time, so I know you're coming from a lot of different denominations and a lot of different backgrounds, but I know something that we all share, and you know what it is? It's that meal. It is that table where some of you come every week or some of you come once a quarter or some of you come once a month and you come to the communion table and you say, yes, Lord, I will eat your flesh and drink your blood. In a metaphorical sense, I will identify with your suffering and I will internalize it. Lord, change my desires as I take in the very food of heaven. Why does the church say, do this and do this and do this? Why does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? Because we are so forgetful. We are so consumed with making sure we have enough hairspray and tinfoil. We are so consumed with wondering about what we should do five years from now and what are our goals and how are we going to get there. And we're so consumed with making up a lie about the person who sits next to us in church so that we can feel better about our own hurts or our own needs. And so every week in some of your churches, at regular intervals, we come together as the body of Christ and we say, Lord, return our appetites to what is true and good. Return our appetites to what they ought to be and fatten our hearts, not for the day of slaughter, but for the day of your return. May these last days be days that are full of storing up treasures in heaven. Genuine faith looks beyond this world. Genuine faith submits to the will of God. So as we close, let me ask you a couple of questions. Three, how this week can you be someone who avoids slander? How can you guard your own words against speaking falsely against those within the community of faith and those outside of it? And I'll add a little second part to that. If someone in here has slandered you, How can you pray for mercy for them instead of justice? Because it's really hard to stay angry at someone who you're interceding for. And then the next question is this. What future plans have you held too tightly? And how can you say, if the Lord wills, How can you set those in the right focus and be open-handed about them? What future plans are you really relying on coming to pass so that your happiness can be held in place? And then the third one is this. Do you control the stuff or does the stuff control you? How can you have a greater image of God who supplies our every need? How can you understand his provision in such a way that you pry your hands off the things of this earth and you cry out for the better meal of identifying with Christ? 
My prayer is that we would all grow in the appearance of, of genuine faith because our hearts are actually taking on genuine faith in all of these ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these beautiful words, these hard words from James. And we confess to you our desire to read a passage of Scripture and have it end on a note that makes us feel warm, that makes us feel good. And Lord, we submit to you even in this and we say, even if it's a hard word, we know that ultimately it is a good word. And we pray, Lord, that we would be open to hearing your teaching, that we would be responsive to the call to set aside slander and to set aside boasting and to set aside those hoarding tendencies that we carry around in our hearts and to say, you speak the better word over us. You teach humility and you provide and provide and provide. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.